I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. Among the key areas of breast cancer research sits the need to understand the drivers of recurrence and metastasis. The goal of this understanding, of course, is to develop more effective treatments for patients with metastatic estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. And this is exactly what Dr. Christina Curtis does. Dr. Curtis and her colleagues have developed and characterized patient-derived model systems, which represent four of the high-risk ER-positive HER2-negative breast cancer subgroups. These models provide unique tools that capture the heterogeneity of patient tumors and the underlying molecular drivers. Her team also used a newly developed machine learning approach and found that there's a prevalence of these four subgroups in patients with breast cancer metastasis compared to those with early-stage disease breast cancer. Ultimately, as you'll hear, the group seeks to develop novel ways to prevent recurrence in high-risk patient populations, helping to deliver the right drug to the right patient at the right time. More about Dr. Curtis. She's an endowed professor of medicine and genetics at Stanford University, where she leads the Cancer Computational and Systems Biology Group and serves as the Director of Breast Cancer Translational Research and Co-Director of the Molecular Tumor Board at the Stanford Cancer Institute. Among other honors, Dr. Curtis was the recipient of the NIH Director's Pioneer Award in 2018 and the American Association for Cancer Research Award for Outstanding Achievement in Basic Science in 2022. Before my conversation with Dr. Curtis, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Dr. Christina Curtis. Dr. Curtis, thanks for joining. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to get into your science and approach to care for you first to explain. I think I understand what molecular biology is, but what is computational biology and why is it so central to your work? And I think the real question that I want to understand here is, do you self-identify more as a science nerd or math geek? Where, where, where are you? Ooh, that's tough. You know, I'll say I'm a science nerd because I'm really motivated by the biology that we can unpack and understand using computational and mathematical techniques. But it's really the biology that drives me. And the tools, which can be computational and experimental in nature, often both, are a means to an end. Computational biology is the science or the practice of applying math or math skills or computational skills specifically to biology and to for biological outcomes. Is that kind of the mashup of the terms? That's right. That's right. So it's really, you know, I mean, it's sort of emerged and actually there's been recent celebrations of sort of the 40 year anniversary of computational biology. It's just a part of a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, you know, this has really been motivated by the vast amounts of data we can now generate using high throughput technologies. And so where this comes to play is, you know, what are the methods, the algorithms that we need to dissect this data? And then how do we interpret it really? Like, mm. how, do you, how do you interpret and distill hundreds of thousands, millions of data points 
in a to, to uncover biological patterns. Yeah, uh, with very very big computers, I would think, yes. or maybe increasingly small, but still very very powerful. So maybe let's dig into the two big questions that I believe um, in reading about you um, drive your life's work, um, which is why does cancer return and why does cancer spread or metastasize? Yeah, so we're really interested in in the origins of cancer and what allows some cancers to be particularly aggressive. Um, and in breast cancer, we know that there's subgroups that we've helped define, subgroups of women um, who can recur at different points in their trajectory. And we're interested in understanding why there might be lapses in time, why some patients might recur early versus late. And um, these late recurrences we can talk more about, but have a, a um, characteristic of being dormant. And, and by dormant, I mean, they could lie silently there undetected for many years. And we really want to intercept those tumors before they recur and present at different organ sites in the body, because it's, of course, much harder to treat them at that point. So that is the part that I would like to get into now. And, and some of that data that you've collected in your studies and these, these subgroups, but just listening to what you just said, Historically, and maybe it's literally before your discoveries and other colleagues, but a dormant tumor. So, for example, I know that that some of your discovery, which you'll talk about, shows how to identify areas that might have high relapse in as late as 20 years. Before we get kind of specifically to that, historically, a tumor that was, to use your word, dormant for some extended period, 5, 10, 20 years, did folks believe historically like, oh, I'm cured. And then all of a sudden, 10, 15, 20 years later, you know, whammo, they got hit with something out of the blue. Is that kind of what you were up against? That's right. So I think our understanding of metastasis is probably still, you know, it's been limited. And that's in part because it takes new tools to study that. But yes, I think the challenge is these are patients who think, okay, I'm five years out. I might be disease-free, I've made it. And yeah. then five, as you say, past five, often 10, 15, 20 and beyond, um, the tumors are uh, emerging again. And of course, this um, is alarming and we're seeing this at an increased rate to the point that this you know, actually has been recognized as one of the great clinical, challenge of, clinical challenges of our time. Mm. And part of that's of course, because the primary tumors are being treated more effectively. These patients are living much longer, so we see them. So this is also sort of fueled by the many advances that we have achieved in breast cancer, and I want to make that clear. But, of course, we want to treat patients through the duration of their journey and, I think, first recognizing it. And then being able to identify those patients is the next critical step that we're, I think, making a dent in. So why is it so important and why is it so revolutionary to be able to identify patients whose tumors express the estrogen receptor, but not the HER2 receptor? These are the, the sort of markers that we use routinely in clinical practice. They're, in fact, um, guide therapy, of course, for estrogen receptor positive patients. Um, that's been indicative of the use of, of anti-estrogen therapies that have really, you know, in a way, one of the first targeted therapeutic approaches. And on the other hand, we have HER2 positive disease. We can, of course, have ER positive and HER2 positive tumors. And those HER2 positive tumors, again, also represent an archetype of precision medicine. 
where we've just seen tremendous advances in being able to target HER2 or ERB2, starting with the development of Herceptin and now many, many other FDA-approved agents. Um, but these the, the women that are ER positive, or the patients that are ER positive, HER2 negative, and um, have active hormone receptor signaling, you know, the standard of care has been endocrine therapy. And that works very well for many, many patients. And I want to you know, acknowledge this is the vast majority of patients are indeed hormone receptor positive, some 75 to 80%. Um, and we're, you know, typically we, we actually think of those tumors as being somewhat less aggressive because we can treat many of them well with anti-estrogen therapies. Um, but there is this appreciation that there's a subset of that population, roughly a quarter. About I was going to say, if 75% are in one direction, does that necessarily mean that a quarter are in this other segment? And it sounds like yes. Right. So uh, so to zoom out, about 75% to 80% are ER positive, the total breast cancer population. And then within that 75%, I see. say that there's an, a 75% that tend to respond quite well to, to therapy, but don't recur so late. And and yet there's been observations that there's, you know, about a quarter of the ER positive subset that um, can recur well beyond five years. And um, and work from many groups has now identified, has, has shown that these populations exist and that they may not have the completely typical characteristics. These, these patients might actually have no lymph node involvement. So they look like they're very low risk tumors. And yet, despite having no lymph nodes at the time of diagnosis, you know, implicated that are that are um, malignant, some of these patients are recurring very late. And so that tells us that our standard approach of just looking at clinical covariates such as tumor size and um, grade lymph node status may not tell us everything we need to know about the patients that are recurring, and that we really need to understand the biology, the makeup, the genetics of those tumors. For these initial results in 2019. That's right. So our study came out um, in 2018 yeah. describing the sort of late recurrence, but there had been a meta-analysis um, of a large number of studies by multiple groups in, in 2017 showing that, aha, we have these, these subgroups of, we have patients who are recurring late. It's about a quarter of ER positive HER2 negatives. But, but in, in that study, um, which was incredibly powerful, there wasn't detailed molecular information. So we could mm. further refine who those patients were, what their biological makeup was. And what um, the 2019 study, where we followed on from our analysis of the Metabric cohort, which is Molecular Taxonomy of Breast Cancer International Consortium, it was a study of 2,000 women with very detailed molecular profiling. So the genome and the transcriptome and and beyond. So really looking inside the cells at the genetic makeup of, indiv- of, the, of the tumor, um, we were able to follow those patients for many years. Um, in fact, such that we would have, you know, um, to 20 years of clinical follow-up, which um, linked to the molecular data, then allowed us to go back and ask, okay, there's a subset of patients that are recurring late. Mm-hmm. Who are these patients? And it turned out um, that really they mapped entirely onto the subgroups that we had defined years in the past, back in 2012, wow. using an unsupervised approach. And, I, and by unsupervised, I just mean that we really let the biology speak to us. We, we, we weren't trying to prescribe how we define subgroups. We asked how many subgroups there were based on the molecular features. And so that was um, a big kind of insight into what the molecular features of these high-risk patients might be. 
And am I understanding correctly that the data that you're examining in the patients, you know, 20 years looking at this, this is the centralized data that the consortium was able to pull together and then groups like yours is able to access that? Right. So um, I was the first author of the first study that led that analysis back in 2012 that combined these data sets. It was a consortium effort, a major effort across five hospitals led, um, you know, at the University of Cambridge and British Columbia, Vancouver, and there were hospitals from multiple sites. So it was this collective effort that really allowed us to amass enough samples, enough data points. And at the time when we did the deep molecular characterization, it was really, it remains one of the, really the largest study of its kind with this kind of molecular information and outcome. And we've made it available to the public. It's been used broadly by breast cancer researchers around the world. Um, And so I, I, you know, I'm really pleased that we were able to uh, allow others to build on that. Um, And then we went back and built on it when we were able to get uh, additional follow-up information for these patients. We've been following them, following them. But of course, then there's a collation effort to say, aha, we've got the, the follow-up time we need to go back and do these statistical analyses. Yeah, um, I've spoken, had the privilege to speak with other researchers who um, dig into some of that shared data, maybe other consortia, but the power that comes from people like you identifying, collecting that data, but then pooling it and finding ways to make it shareable um, uh, is it's become clear to me as a layperson how how important that is. It also seems like you know I wonder is is now the time when I should ask you what you think about uh, scientists who studied at University of Cambridge, or we'll save that for <laughs> we'll save that for another. Never. I have warm warm uh, memories and a, a had a brilliant time there. I mean, it's such an intellectually stimulating environment. So yes. That. Always happy to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it must be uh, fantastic there. What other subgroups did you identify and why was identifying those so significant? Sure. So, you know, we had originally described, I mean, there's 11 integrative subtypes is how we refer to them. And they're integrative because what we did in this first study that was um, quite novel was to combine not only transcriptome information, which is how the genes are expressed in our cells, but also their um, copy number state. And by copy number, I mean, is a particular gene amplified or are there multiple copies in a cell? And typically, genes that drive cancer might be uh, represented in more copies than, than in a normal cell. And it fuels this kind of overdrive of a particular signaling cascade. So by bringing in the copy number information, which hadn't been done before, we found that there's a number of subgroups that actually look a lot like HER2 positive breast cancer with different mm. genomic drivers. And HER2 is really an archetype of that gene can be amplified and overexpressed many, many times. And we target that oncogene. But as a field, you know, kind of as a whole, we haven't um, really followed up on targeting copy number drivers. We, we go after mutations. And so that's a bit nuanced. But what we really defined here was new subgroups that we think might be targetable in a similar fashion to her too. And that knowing how transformative that has been for the field, um, I think that gives us a lot of optimism. And, and it happens to be that that there are four subgroups amongst these ER positive HER2 negative patients that account for this 25%, 25% that are at high risk. There's four different groups. They have different molecular aberrations or mutations. And so 
really the interest comes in how do we go about targeting those specific subgroups in a way that we can circum ultimately circumvent relapse and um, you know when a relapse has occurred perhaps treat it more effectively and so the notion is that perhaps endocrine therapy alone you know isn't enough for these patients and there's of course other agents in development um, as well and a lot of exciting um, work in the past few years to bring forward new therapies but that's your promise which leads I think to an area that I'm certain that you spend a lot of time uh, thinking about personalized breast cancer treatment and risk prediction. From your point of view, why is personalization of care and prediction both so important and so hard? And where do you see personalization going? Yeah, it's a great question. I think this is really where um, where we need to move to and where there's already been a lot of developments, but we can certainly do more. I think um, personalization is so critical because we want to make sure that we're delivering the right therapy to the right patient at the right time, also in the right dose, and that we're sparing them any unnecessary toxicity. And that's a whole other area of focus within my group is, you know, when can we um, de-escalate or reduce the therapy that we're giving, perhaps chemotherapy in favor of a, a targeted agent? And when do we need to escalate? And, yeah. you know, this is an example of escalation where we think we need more than just endocrine therapy to prevent these recurrences. And part of that may be because such patients are intrinsically resistant to those endocrine therapies. So, so when we think about personalization, we really want to take um, as much information into account um, as possible about the likelihood that this tumor is going to be an aggressive one and the likelihood that it would respond to particular agents. So we want to be predictive um, with respect to the treatment response as well. And, and we know that molecular features can shape the, um, you know, they, they influence the vulnerabilities of that of those tumor cells. So we want to go after them and target, you know, the tumor cells and hopefully not the rest of the, the cells um, want to uh, really mitigate that. So there's a lot that can be done with this information. It does require a lot of data and it requires these kinds of computational modeling approaches to say, how do we categorize patients? How do we group them mm. together? And when do we need more refinement in that grouping? And that comes at multiple, there's multiple layers to that. You started to segue then into my next question, which is what's next regarding your study or were the areas that you were just talking about not the areas that you plan to attack next? No, they absolutely are. They absolutely are. So we think that, you know, this framework that we've described really um, provides a lot of potential for how we can tailor these therapies, because it turns out, I think what's really exciting about this discovery is that it's not just that we can define which patients are at risk. We can do that. But the very fact that we can group them actually, you know, the way that we've grouped them uncovers novel vulnerabilities that we can then target potentially therapeutically. And so, um, of course, you know, bringing new therapies forward is always a long road. There's a lot of testing to make sure that these are safe and efficacious for the population. And, um, and we've been doing a lot of work in um, experimental work in the laboratory to sort of evaluate these therapeutic strategies and then to design new cl clinical trials. And we're really you know, I think excited about the fact that this, this, these new biomarkers that we've developed predict risk, potentially predict benefit from particular therapies. And um, so we're looking to, to um, you know, essentially um, 
deliver trials to, to early stage patients where we can um, really understand the unique biology and, and doing trials in the early stage setting can be more challenging in some set. We often start in the, in the more advanced setting and move drugs back up the pipeline and sometimes that mm -hmm. works and sometimes it doesn't work. And um, our rationale around this is that we really need to understand that unique biology. And if we can start by looking how these therapeutic interventions work in, this, in these high-risk populations, we can learn a lot about how to do better for these patients. And so we're embarking on, on clinical trials to do just that, to do biomarker stratification. And these are ambitious in many respects because we're doing very comprehensive molecular profiling upfront. Um, but I think that this also sets the stage for the wave of the future and how we can personalize therapy at the very beginning. And, and the reason I think that ultimately is so important, and of course there's great you know, standard of care options. So that's, that's where the challenge is. We have a great, we've come so far in our therapies for breast cancer patients. So to do better is the bar is very high. And I want to make that clear. The bar is very, very high. Um, but I think that if we can do more sooner and, and set patients on the right course for the beginning with therapies that are tailored to their risk, um, and we can monitor them because we also need to follow them. It's not, as I said, some of these patients may recur later and we want to continuously track that risk then I think we will be achieving better outcomes. And, and we don't want to wait to just the end to do it when it's, you know, later than we would like and, and the efficacy may be lower. Tell me about you. How did you get into this? I mean, going, going back, where did you grow up? Was it always science and math for you? Did you ever think perhaps, you know, fiction, novelist, world-class skier? How did you get into this? Yeah, well, I still have ambitions to, you know, be a world-class skier. I don't know. I think my kids have surpassed me by now. Probably, um, you know, yeah. It, yeah, it was it was always science. It was always this. I mean, from the time I was, um, you know, really a high school student, I hmm. determined I would do a PhD in genetics and, wow. and, and to focus on cancer. But I wanted to understand the genetic basis of cancer. And, of course, I didn't know what tools I would need to do that. That was, you know, predated the sort of genomic revolution that we have now lived through. But... Um, uh, you know, a family history of cancer. And I just, I thought this is encoded in our cells. I need to get to the bottom of this. And it's really been the driving force for everything I've done. And I feel like, I, I feel so fortunate that that passion was sparked really early because in some sense, it made my path really clear. Mm. And, you know, as these technologies emerge to allow us to probe hundreds, millions of molecules simultaneously, it suddenly was also obvious that we needed computational tools to interpret this. So I, in many ways, I feel like I was in the right place at the right time where hmm. these programs to train people in this new field that was kind of largely unrecognized, a merger of folks from computer science and um, math and biology to really get to train in that space, I think um, has been just a huge privilege. And now I think it's hard to even think about some of the questions we address in biology without some of those tools. Um, so it's certainly changed, but I, but I do feel really fortunate. And I, and, and I think this is just such an amazing time to be doing this kind of work as well. The, the pace at which discoveries are happening and clinical translation is happening that we, you know, I think we can really move the needle so much faster. And I, I tell that to my trainees that this is the golden era to be doing this. An incredible to me that you were able to develop such a passion in high school. I mean, that was kind of, it was pre-CRISPR, there were aspects from the Human Genome Project, obviously, that had come to light. And so they were in society to a certain extent. 
but pre a lot of the exciting, more popular innovations that many of the rest of us have heard about. And yet even, you know, back in high school, you were finding it inspiring. That's pretty terrific. What about BCRF? What, what role has BCRF played in your research? BCRF has been instrumental. Um, they funded me early on when I was just getting going as an assistant professor and um, taking my first ideas to the lab, some of which were bold and probably would not have been funded by conventional means. Mm. And, you know, the, the funding allowed us to get some of our first um, federal funding, federal awards. Um, but I absolutely would not be doing the work that I'm doing today. And I, I think that I wouldn't be um, as close to translating it to the clinic, which is mm. what I find to be of immense reward. I mean, I, I always hoped when I started doing this back, even as, I, you know, early on that this would, some of the discoveries we would make would eventually reach patients. I, you, you never know if that will happen, how long that will take. Um, and some of it's serendipity and some of it is, you know, we're starting with very basic fundamental questions that may not have an immediate path. Um, but I would say some of the most rewarding things that I'm pursuing right now is how do we deliver on this new knowledge and how do we deliver that to patients? And um, as, though I'm not a clinician, I really enjoy being able to see how this can can move that needle. And um, yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of hooked on it. So I think, I think now you know passions emerge along the way, and it's like how do we how do we do better and how do we do better faster? How do we accelerate this? Uh, that seems to be a, a theme of yours. Just in in listening to your answer, how do you balance bold versus practical, whatever the, the opposite of bold is, you know, um, how, how do you, how do you balance that both in, in how you run your lab, how you think about, you know, the problems that you want to attack, what's your philosophy on that? I mean, so I guess part of this is I, I, I think that a couple fold, one is we need to be multidisciplinary in our approach. And, and my lab certainly is that we, you know, are using computational techniques. We're using experimental techniques. I don't think we can fully move this needle without doing that. And we work very closely with clinicians to make sure that we're really thinking about this from a, um, you know, where is the biggest bang for buck for the patient? How do we move that? Um, but I also feel like, um, I don't know, in some sense, because I, I also trained in these other fields, I was a bit of an outsider. And so sometimes my perspective, you know, that I come in with is different. And I just am sort of asking these questions. Well, why do, why do we think this works this way? Why is mm. that? Do we know that it works that way? And maybe I'm a bit of a skeptic. Um, but as a result, you know, you don't always know when you start asking these questions that what you're doing might challenge dogma. You don't know, you get going and then you realize, oh, this was the status quo and we're seeing this and how do we, you know, this is what we see. And I, I'm a big believer that we have to let the data speak to us. And sometimes that leads you in bold places and new places. But I think um, I'm not really afraid to take risks because I think that if we want to get there faster, we have to do some risky things. And there's great value in continuing to build on what our knowledge is, but sometimes I think we have to look at it through a different lens and see what's there and, and accept that occasionally that will, that maybe more often not, that will be a dead end, but sometimes we'll find things that allow us to really um, understand the biology differently and maybe treat patients differently as a result. And I'm certain that the team members in your lab are thrilled to get the question from Dr. Curtis. How do we know that? How do how do we know that? Yeah, I, I'm I'm sure they uh, they don't panic at all when they get that question, do they? We have a lot of fun in lab, you know, and and I'm always learning from them. I mean, I think that's the amazing thing is like there were the great thing about this job, best job in the world, is that you know you never stop learning, and it, it does mean that it can be all consuming at times. But it's it is a great privilege. 
you're all fighting this battle and trying to get these answers for patients and for um, people uh, together. Um, and we thank you for that. Dr. Curtis, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the work that you and your team do every day. Thank you so much. It's a privilege. And, um, yeah, I really enjoyed our discussion. That was my conversation with Dr. Christina Curtis. My thanks to Dr. Curtis for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.